Welcome back to Core Ideas, the podcast interested in all things related to lake sediments and paleolimnology. My name is Adam Jesiorski, and as always, I'm here with my good friend, Josh Steenbaum. What's up? How's it going? Ah, it's going pretty well. I'm back again uh, to work through another core reading list. Yeah, I screwed up the title of the arc when I first posted it. Uh, lost the, not necessary, but very low ball, slow ball core <laughs> reading list. So apologies to that, but uh, we are back again. All my efforts at branding are wasted. Yeah, I know. But anyway, uh, regular listeners will remember that the theme of this, our, our current episode arc, is to develop introductory reading lists for a variety of paleolimnological topics. That's right, yeah. And and in doing so, it's not going to be exhaustive. Obviously, we're just looking for several short reading lists that you might give to someone who is new to a topic, a new student perhaps, as an introduction to the literature for that topic. Uh, more of a jumping off uh, and a, a review of some of the really critical or... or fundamental sort of papers there yeah and if you're listening to these in like a sort of a binge microscope microscope session this might be getting old but we're going to recap the rules once again because this is the first time we've had rules for one of these arcs Um, and we can never assume anyone is is listening to all of them so (laughs) yeah if you're just joining at this one welcome yeah uh and yes we absolutely are not trying to produce comprehensive reading lists uh just we're aiming for five or so, uh, maybe like last week we slipped a couple of honorable mentions in last time, but five key papers that will act as a primer primer for deeper dives into the relevant literature of a, a particular topic. The papers won't necessarily be the foundational papers or the first papers. So for example, if we were, if, and we won't, uh, we were doing genetics revolution, we wouldn't be going to Mendel or Darwin for the first principles. In part because many of these ideas have percolated through the literature and just are no longer really the best place to start. It's definitely somewhere to visit. But and also, you know, the older you go, um, the less approachable some of this material can be. So trying to stay a little bit more current um, and approachable as like just getting your getting your toes wet before diving into the deeper waters of knowledge, as it were. And we're going to do our best to minimize the number of reviews that we include and spread the focus around multiple authors slash research groups, if possible. That's right. And if you didn't catch that first episode, you can go back, have a look. We focused on led to 10 dating uh, as a, a critical foundation for paleolimnology and picked out some selections there. And I think that format actually worked out quite nicely. Um, so... What should we do next? Well, I have an idea um, as something equally uh, fundamental and foundational to paleolimnology writ large. Uh, now that you are officially in the business of recruiting graduate students to your own research program, let's talk about your research interests. Well, I guess you can twist my arm uh, to talk about that. It's one thing at least I won't have to do a lot of pre-reading to uh, to do so happy to do uh that and and if you are interested in graduate work you could always send me an email or find me on twitter or any of the ways to link to it and and we could have a chat if these are topics that are interested and yeah and then maybe we'll 
I mean, you're not recruiting grad students, but you obviously have your own unique interest. Maybe we'll flip the coin at some point soon and do a reading list around your background. Okay. And just for any potential interested grad students listening, when he says, you know, if you're interested in my research, he is a, Josh is a professor at York University. You got to advertise this a little bit better, Josh. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, you, you find it in there. That's right. I'm a, I'm a assistant professor at York University in the Faculty of Environmental and Urban Change. And you can find uh, our research group that's uh, jointly run by myself and Professor Jenny Carosi, uh, what we call the Limnology and Paleo, Paleo Environmental, Paleoecological, whatever it is, Paleo Environmental <laughs> Research Group. Um, but you can find us there. Uh, but in that, in doing so, you know, it's always hard to, to pin down what it is you're interested in, you know, what what your research is. Like even coming up with the name for labs, we I find quite challenging, almost limiting. Um, limnology, paleoenvironmental research. But but I'm really interested in, in the North historically. I started as a graduate student uh, and and foundational to that, fundamental, literally underlying Northern research is permafrost. So I think that's what, uh, what I'd like to talk about if I was going to pick a reading list out of my own research interests. Oh, okay. So then, um, on like the, I guess, the biggest big picture level, what are the fundamental questions that you're most interested in? Yeah, so permafrost is just a, a feature, right? And, and we'll get into what that is and some definitions and stuff. It, not to make this a lecture, but to just set the stage. But uh, as something so big and so present and so important to the Arctic, there's so much research on permafrost from the geotechnical, how it behaves, what it's made up by all of those kind of things. Whole research programs focus on one facet of the temperature of the ground and all of the things that are built on that. I'm interested sort of in the linkage between the geomorphology, so the form of the ground and how it changes and the processes that change the ground surface in permafrost regions, and how that impacts aquatic ecosystems, and, and particularly using lake sediments to track how permafrost is changing at the landscape level, and then what impact that's having on lakes that are downstream of those changes. Does that make sense? That succinct enough kind of two main things around permafrost. No, that, that makes sense. Um, and just for context for listeners here, I am not a northern researcher at all. I'm very, all my stuff is very much focused in the uh, temperate zone. And so if I sound like an idiot in any of my questions, it is not an act and it is not my uh, um, uh, particular realm of study. Um, but I do know that permafrost is a ma massively broad in scope in general. Um, and I think to go any further in terms of producing a list and narrowing down into specific questions and where you would start, we need some more context. Uh, again, not just for the listeners, um, but also myself. So maybe rattle off a couple of really quick definitions. Yeah, what for sure. And and if I and if I go too like too in depth, too lecture, just just cut me off because I could talk about this for a long time. And and some of it's needed contextually, but otherwise it's just a little bit of. Um, interesting but but maybe not uh, on point kind of things but yeah what is permafrost is probably the first that question. is what i was going to ask 
Yeah, exactly. And uh, and it's a, a fairly straightforward definition. It's ground that remains frozen for two or more consecutive years. So any ground that doesn't thaw in subsequent summers. So it stays frozen over the summer. The two or more just means that it can be for a relatively short duration. A lot of the permafrost has been frozen for a long, long time. Depending on where you are geographically, that could be going back for hundreds of thousands of years uh, throughout the last glacial uh, cycles, many cycles in some cases. So that's a very straightforward definition. The thing that gets built into that is it, it doesn't have any constituent in the definition of what it's made out of. So permafrost can be just rock that is cold, that stays below freezing, just bedrock that is frozen is permafrost, or it can be mud and ice and the remains of mammoths that died on the steppe during the, the you know, mid quaternary and, and all of those things. So it's a really broad definition in terms of what makes up permafrost, even if the, the functional term is pretty straightforward. Okay. Um, this obviously leads massively into general climate change studies. Uh, so what happens when the permafrost melts? Uh, two things. It never does uh, is the most important thing to, to first answer that. And that was a setup. Adam knows the end. The, my, the, you know, not my thoughts, the thoughts on this. So melting is a, is a, a state change, right? In, you know, if you think back to your basic chemistry, when a solid becomes a liquid, it's melting. Um, permafrost is not one solid, right? Cause I just said, it could be rocks. It could be water. It could be mud. It could be mammoth bone, whatever it is. Uh, there's not that many mammoths, but there are a lot in there. Uh, so permafrost doesn't melt, it thaws. And the best analogy, the one we always use, I certainly didn't come up with it. I've been told it was Vladimir Romanovsky, a professor at University of Alaska Fairbanks, permafrost researcher uh, of great renown, many, many years of research, who came up with the, the analogy that permafrost is like a frozen chicken. You can't melt a chicken, you can thaw a frozen chicken, right? Because the bone and the meat and the juices and all those things will thaw at different rates. So that that is the the functional definition and, and probably will be the basis for the image for this podcast, uh, because it is is one that we talk about all the time. What happens when permafrost thaws, however, uh, really depends on what it's made of. If it's bedrock that was cold and gets warmer, so it, it thaws in the uh, summer, and then refreezes in the winter, probably nothing happens. It, it remains rock, right? If it, however, is ice, ground ice, uh, or soils that were very wet in constituent, more like the lake sediments the listeners may be familiar with, then lots can happen in depending on the terrain. So if it's really flat terrain, you might get a pond forming. You might get subsidence, the ground sinks, and, and that is called thermokarst. So the subsidence of the ground when permafrost thaws is thermokarst. And then all sorts of other things. There's tons of different types of thermokarst. I couldn't even label, label them all or list them all. Um, but, but there's lots of different landscape changes that occur when ice-rich permafrost, that permafrost that's most likely to uh, really change the landscape when it thaws, when, when that thaw occurs. And, and it's 
something that's happening everywhere because our planet is warming. The northern and southern uh, high latitude locations are warming faster. They started warming earlier. So thermokarst and, and other permafrost law, but primarily thermokarst is ongoing and accelerating. Okay. So this is where I'm going to plead ignorance a little bit. So when you see those northern pictures of, you know, the permafrost thaw and like the road is all misshapen now and like the uh, telephone poles are all askew, that would just yep. generally be referred to as a type of thermokarst action probably yeah okay the 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 telephone poles askew the drunken forest those are certainly going to be thermokarst they probably occur when lakes are expanding or you have the collapse of some sort of uh, landscape feature like a, a plateau a peat plateau those are thermokarst features the undulating terrain sometimes can be just cryoturbation you know when you freeze well you freeze a water bottle that's full it expands right uh, ice in the ground does that too. So there's, there are other reasons, but but that kind of sinking of houses, all of those subsidence kind of events, and then also the like slope movements where you get landslides um, of the the slurry of stuff that has uh, thawed and melted water um, are all examples of thermokarst. Okay. Um. All right, so those are the two main ones I want to cover. Is there anything else before we dive into the list that anything needs to be defined at, at this stage? No, I don't think so. I mean, it, you know, there are other things about permafrost, where it's located, how continuous it is, how thick it is. The, the most important sort of from what we've been talking about is really just how much ice is in it. So how much excess ice or just how wet the uh, ground is. Uh, a little bit about the geology, obviously, like really fine grained clay types of material are going to behave differently than sandy, silty types of material. But uh, from a first order control on what's going to happen when when thaw occurs, water is is key there and then terrain and then geology, probably surficial geology. And and I, I've never done any research in, in like really solid permafrost environments, deep permafrost my research because i'm interested in surficial features lakes uh, primarily being a biologist by um, training if not everyday work uh, where I, I guess i'm a geographer now uh, is uh, in thermokarst and and really slope movement so these geomorphic changes okay all right then uh as clear as mud uh so that's right so let's get rolling with the list so keep in mind, we're going to build a five paper list here. Uh, what would you want to lead off with? It's always a hard one. The The first slot is really important one. And I'm going to pick uh, a, a couple papers as we work into it that are not paleo specific, because obviously, you know, how you can apply lake sediment techniques is super important. Uh, but understanding a little bit about permafrost broadly is contextually really, really critical. So, and I have a, a, a little bit of a, a connection to the first one. So the first paper is uh, by Boris Biscoborn and a whole bevy of authors. It's a big author paper. It's in uh, Nature Communications. And, and despite having, I don't know, 30 some authors, it is a short title. It's called Permafrost is Warming at a Global Scale. Uh, published in 2019, open access being in Natcom. Uh, so there's, you know, it's not intentional part of this 
process, but I think that's that's helpful. And so you know those short paper or short title papers, um, you know, kind of snappy, uh, but it's a really good summary. And Boris is a per, a paleolimnologist, and we've worked with him uh, uh, very tangentially in in a paper that we'll talk about later. Um, and and in this paper, it's it's really a summary, recent summary of sort of the state of knowledge related to permafrost temperature changes uh, in all of the different permafrost zones we didn't talk about, but going from the very, very northern continuous down to the more discontinuous permafrost gives some hard numbers on how much temperature change has occurred in those areas. And just as a good introduction to the nature of permafrost, some implications for more at a very very small scale, big picture, looking at the whole planet for what's happening in different kinds of permafrost and uh, and and just a good summary to kind of get you into this field. So especially if you're a paleolimnologist kind of dipping your toes into the permafrost literature, you, you may have a good background in the, the specific science. This will give you that that fundamental permafrost uh, view. Okay. Um, yeah. So for those following along at home, uh, shortly after the episode airs, we will update the website with a list of links to all these. And because um, again, uh, the names and the titles can be hard to com- convey quickly in audio form, but also uh, particularly for all the papers like this one that are open access, then uh, it becomes that much easier to disseminate. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Uh, quickly and... Um... You can have a look at yourself, read the abstracts, maybe read the whole thing. So that's my first choice. Okay. Uh, so that is a very recent paper. It can't have been your first choice for very long. It's only three years old. No, I and and I don't think. I mean, being in that 2019 world and 20, you know, 2020 kind of thing, I only really came across it um, probably during during the pandemic. Kind of well, obviously we're still in the pandemic, but uh, when when kind of you know step back and, and just seeing what's going on, probably in in early 2021, I think. So even even more recent than that, and and I think it's a good paper for there. lots of reasons, and um, and has a whole you know one of the nice things about that huge author list. I want to move on, but just to say that you have Canadian experts um, experts working in Alaska in the United States, uh, Southern Hemisphere experts. Um, Lots of Europeans, Germany, where uh, where Boris works out of it, Alfred Wegener, huge permafrost research, uh, Asia, uh, high latitude areas, just a really good global picture. Fantastic. All right. Okay. Paper number two. Yeah, number two. Okay, so this is the one I, I know best that I'm not an author on. Um, maybe even better than the one I am an author on at the end of this list. It's written by my good friend, long-term colleague, Steve Kakel. Uh, at the Northwest Territories Geological Survey, um, came out in 2017. It is in uh, Geology, the journal. It is also open access. I don't think that whole journal is. I think they they chose to make this one so. And it is called Climate Driven Thaw of Permafrost Preserved Glacial Landscapes, Northwestern Canada. So we're moving now into a Canadian focus uh, though there is obviously implications for all uh, northern regions, especially related to thermokarst in this case. So we're moving into, for my interests, the the place where we're talking about 
ice rich permafrost primarily and uh and it's thaw in in the current landscape and i love this paper i use it in my undergraduate teaching um because i think it is it's quite approachable and and it's just this really cool concept that they've worked with and and it's one of those great examples in that this is a seems like a fairly straightforward kind of concept the idea that where we have these large permafrost thaw features uh, in particular, a type of thermocarst called retrogressive thaw slumps that was what I work on primarily. Um, that these, the largest ones, the ones that are rapidly thawing, accelerating, is right at the outline, the edge of the maximum of the Laurentide ice sheet at the last glacial maximum. So effectively, what is now occurring is the end stage of deglaciation that's been going on for the entire Holocene. So initial deglaciation was the loss of the, the ground ice, the surface ice, right? Uh, but permafrost is the ground ice that's frozen down still into the ground, right? So there is this ice that is glacial ice, including the big excess pieces uh, that we're now conducting this experiment on our planet at such a rapid rate in terms of thaw of of warming that it is finishing off deglaciation at the margins where the ice sheets went to and if you look at their mapping which is one part of this paper there's no large thaw events where the where they were beyond the last glacial maximum so in refugia where there were no ice sheets uh, and it seems so simple you know but it's only because they've been studying these things for 25 years that they were able to piece all of this together. So that's my pitch as to why this is maybe my favorite paper, uh, broadly. Okay. Well, I think the main thing that jumped out at me outside of like, the general coolness of it all is you kind of really have to define what a retrogressive thaw slump is. Right. So uh, I, I kind of did. I just didn't use the term. So uh, a, 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 a retroglossive slump or a slump in general is a type of landslide. It's a, a landslide that is instead of being linear, like a like a something sliding over top of um, a, a solid surface, it has this uh, curved shape to it. So it looks like a C or a a C-shaped depression that car is carved into the into the ground. A th retrogressive thaw slump is just because the the initiating feature isn't like wetting of material; it's the thaw of the ice that's or the melting of the ice that's there. So, in areas where there's lots of permafrost, the ice will get exposed by just rain events, often just natural land movement. The sun will melt that ice, which releases kind of the containment of the ground that's sitting on top of it. And that stuff falls into the base of this slump into this landslide and they they grow and change okay. and they get massive. I've I've been uh, and some of the ones that are, are really the, the basis of this paper are, uh, you know, the pieces of land that are falling into the slump are like the size of buses. Um, the slumps themselves are many many hectares in area yeah that's kind of i was kind of like poking towards is that the whole idea of you have these northern lakes where you have situations where a huge chunk of the catchment can fall into the lake yes 
Yeah, for sure. In some cases, especially with the catchments or headwater small, you know, you're you're looking at uh, 10% of the catchment area by by area, not by volume, obviously, uh, slumping into the lake. And, and bringing with it all sorts of the stuff. So if the geology is, you know, shale-based, you know, lots of strontium and calcium and all of those things get translocated into the lake. And, and that's what I'm kind of interested in primarily is what happens to the systems after. Whereas working nicely with people like Steve, they tell me about the, the slumps and, and where they are and that kind of thing. Yeah, because just on like the most, <clears throat> excuse me, one of the most obvious of levels, is these are events associated with massive ecological change. They can be, yeah, for sure. And and in some ways, this is getting a little off topic, but I, I've been surprised by how little ecological change they can they can induce in some cases. And and partly that may just be systems that are are fairly disturbed uh, a lot of the time it's cold it's you know harsh-ish kind of conditions but also a lot of times what's what's entering into the lake is just melted water that was in the ground and and the amount of sediment uh soil it, it can be maybe less than you would imagine still significant okay cool well we definitely have to include like a really good yeah. picture of one of these we have I have some of the, well, some including, I think the one in this paper they refer to as one that drained a lake. Um, that That's the, the final threshold. Uh, one of these slumps did eat into a valley and there was a small lake at the top of it and it drained it. And we can link to some of the amazing uh, images and, and footage that, uh, that they took when that happened. All right. Paper number three. All right. Yeah, I got to work a little faster here, Josh. But those are the foundational kind of background stuff. And now I want to get into some paleo uh, examples. Finish with three paleo examples. So the first one, uh, I mean, you could go in any order. I think we'll go chronologically for for lack of a better way to do it. It's the only paper not open access. Boo. It is. I uh, know it is from 2010. So it's the oldest paper as well. Maybe that's why it's in Stoughton, uh, Science of the Total Environment. It's by Johan Reideberg and others uh, in the research, uh, the paleo, you know, from the paleo research community, one of the paleo research communities in uh, Sweden. Uh, in Umea. Uh, so that's Peter Rosen, uh, Richard Bindler, uh, and, and those uh, experts there. And, and Sweden, another thing about this paper is we kind of move over to Europe you keep in mind that, you know, Canadians, we focus on Canadian examples, but from a paleo perspective, working in high latitude areas, some of the things we've talked about already from acid rain work in, in Northern Europe and Finland and Sweden, maybe a little bit in Norway, but really Finland and Sweden, there's this huge record of paleo limnological work up there. And yep. Can you give us the title? Oh, yeah, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> Climate driven release of carbon and mercury from permafrost Myers increases mercury loading to subarctic. Lakes. There we go. I keep forgetting okay. the title. I did that last time as well. <laughs> I got everything else. The year. Yeah. Okay. We got it. I was, I was being too uh, dived right uh, in. detailed about the authors in particular, because they do have, you know, a lot of really good work. Uh, yeah, so a lot of research has been going on there. And, and I don't know that this paper was explicitly interested in originally just permafrost thaw, but it was, it was focused on 
understanding carbon dynamics because that's really important for the global climate cycle and and frozen ground uh, especially organic rich ground like in a, a peatland environment or a mire as they they call them in europe um is a huge source of that, huge potential source of that. And and also it can be a source of contaminants like mercury, especially those globally distributed contaminants. So I'm not sure this paper was explicitly about permafrost thaw. That was more a mechanism for the movement of some of those materials to, uh, to lake environments. Um, so I think that's a really good place to start. And, and you could kind of do similar things. And we did do some contaminant work on our, uh, uh, looking at thaw slumps as a, a potential source of range of different contaminants. And ultimately it came out to some were, some were not as important, really local geology. And then also the, the geography of, uh, environments is important there. So that's number three. All right. And the first paleo one. All right. Then paper number four. Yeah. Moving along. Okay. So number four back. Uh, so the next two, the last two, papers are in Arctic Science, which is a relatively new, not that new anymore, but relatively new journal uh, put out by Canadian Science Publishing. Um, just big shout out to them. They're great supporters of Canadian science broadly. So like uh, FACETS is the journal. FACETS is one of their open access, broad discipline science journals is the official journal of the Royal Society of Canada. Arctic Science has a really, uh, really being newer, but has a, a broad focus in the north. CJFAS, Canadian Journal of Fisheries and Aquatic Sciences, um, obviously been around for many, many years. Great supporter. So uh, I, I, I like CSP journals generally. It's where I try and publish quite a bit of our research. This paper is from 2016 by Jana Tondu and the research group at the combined powers of Wilfrid Laurier University and the University of Waterloo. And it is called, didn't forget there, Limnological Evolution of Zelma Lake, a recently drained thermokarst lake in the Old Crow Flats, Yukon, Canada. So Adam knows these these folks well. We've talked about them. Uh, actually, we haven't, yeah, we haven't really done a ton of focus on... Uh, water isotopes. We did talk about the pad in our isotope lecture. Yeah, I think we would have referred to their work obliquely more so than actually named the names that round out this list, like mm -hmm. Roland Hall, who is how I got into paleolimnology many, many, many moons ago by joining mm -hmm. his lab and Brent Wolfert Laurier and, yep. and others. Yeah. And we, we talked about, we talked about Roland's uh, paper quite recently. Why do I feel like we were talking about that with, uh, or maybe that was planning for another episode. <laughs> anyway, uh, they all come together. I don't even know what day it is. Stay focused. Anyway. Focused. <laughs> I know, right. Okay, so this paper, Old Crow Flats is a really interesting landscape, just broadly. It's in the northwest of Canada, uh, sheltered by the Richardson Mountains, so it's on the west of that, almost into Alaska, the most northern part of, of the Yukon Territory. Um, doesn't have this glaciation history. Very, very flat. Uh, there's a few river, like there's one big river, the Old Crow River. Uh, but beyond that, it's all these thermokarst lakes. And being in this kind of unique location, it's really susceptible to to warming like many others. Um, and, and one of the 
other potential ways in which permafrost thaw manifests is draining lakes away. And this paper was uh, used a, a range of different techniques to, including some paleo stuff, obviously, to look at the conditions around the drainage of this lake as, as another really important mechanism for permafrost thaw. And there's been work that's continued. Kevin Turner uh, at Brock University continues to work up there, as, as I think do uh, Brent Rowland. Cool beans. Oh, that, and oh, I, I don't think I mentioned, sorry to cut you off, that uh, if I didn't, uh, Arctic Science is open access. So we, yep. these last two will yep. fall into that. So, yeah. So we're four, three or four so far have been open access. And so we continue on with number five. And then we'll number do a recap five. at the end. Perfect. Okay. So uh, I'm on this one. I'm the fourth <laughs> author on this one. Um, it is disqualified. No, no, we didn't say anything about self-citing. As are, is Jenna on this one? No, but Boris is. Um, Brent and Roland are on this as well. Reinhard Peanuts, we we all know well. Uh, read, uh, the paper is led though. The lead author is Frederick Bouchard, um, another good friend of ours. Ah, this is a shocking author list that I know everybody, on, almost everybody on this <laughs> lo relatively long list personally. That's kind of uh, funny. That's right, yeah. And uh, and the paper is called Paleolimnology of Thermokarst Lakes, A Window into Permafrost Landscape Evolution. So this is a review. It's the first review, I think, in any of our well, two core reading lists um, where we, we basically all got together under Fred's wonderful leadership uh, to put together some of our ideas about, about our own research and just how permafrost uh, and thermokarst specifically manifests and and how paleolimnology is a useful tool for tracking those kind of uh, changes and and really it is it is broad we have the old crow examples we have my own work in the delta we have some more southern um, canadian examples from that jenny has led and 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 continues to work on i mean this is now six years old so we you know we could do a, an update of this and it would it would definitely have grown work by uh fred in northern Quebec, uh, especially on Thermokarst Lakes there. Uh, Andrew Medeiros, I think I remember exactly where he was contributing work from, either the Hudson Bay Lowlands or some some other stuff in Old Crow. And then also Boris, we, you know, we got we got this uh, international component added into uh, to that. Yeah, just pre skimming the abstract here as you're talking. Yeah, it's like the Canadian North, Alaska and Siberia. It's like a pretty good global coverage yeah yeah especially for these thermocarst landscapes it's certainly not exhaustive uh lots of other people but but from a paleo perspective that that's uh that's sort of uh well that was sort of it uh, i think it's, it's probably grown a little bit which is great um in those years since but uh, at the time that that uh, was was the were the people we knew and um could bring together for this example uh, yeah, and, and it really talks a little bit about techniques, a little bit about the variation and just how diverse uh, a, a topic it is, but how paleo can be a, a really useful way, depending on the indicators and all of the stuff we, we talk all the time about, to track permafrost thaw uh, and landscape evolution and just how those landscapes change. Cool means. All right, there we go. Five papers. That's Introduction it. to permafrost. Um 
paleolimological research, I guess. I, I don't I don't know how you would like encapsulate it in like a sentence of Yeah. Yeah, I would have to think about that a little more. Probably uh I mean we do have obviously permafrost broadly, but uh changing permafrost landscapes in paleolimnology, something there we like go. that. There we go. And and yeah, covering uh various aspects from it and just permafrost in general it's paleolimnology and then a review at the end so i'm assuming this is a list that you would happily if not have already sent out in a welcome to the project type uh email address with a stack of pdfs for an overwhelmed student here and there yes i would yeah for sure and i think they're pretty approachable i wouldn't say these you know there's not that many equations in those papers okay yeah uh all right so that is our list you may disagree and that's fine um but as i'm reading through things uh, a couple of questions came to mind as like the outsider on this particular show is that these are all fairly recent like i mean the oldest paper in your list is from 2010 and you think of like last time we were like going should this one from the 70s be included or not and like so does that mean the study of permafrost on this way is a relatively new discipline or is it just like, I don't know. I just found that kind of shocking when you threw yeah, this together. I don't think it's new. I think, uh, it's rapid, it's expanding. And, and so you, you know, there are great papers from back. You could have easily put in some papers from the early two thousands, late nineties that are excellent examples. Um, and, and, on a different day, I probably would have, if I'd been thinking about those, um, probably not going to get them open access generally, you know, the, the, the world was different then. And that wasn't all that important, but it, it does come into play in my mind. And, um, yeah, it's just that, that there's so much research, it's growing so rapidly, uh, that you have a lot to choose from. And, and so you can pick some really new examples of that. And from the paleo perspective, I think the, the, those are, are relatively new, um, because you have to identify the problem, you have to understand it fundamentally. And there was lots of permafrost research going on in the 70s, amazing work by Ross Mackay and and many, many others. Um, but then from a perspective of, of tracking those changes, understanding the landscape implications that that is coming more recently as the paleolimnologists have uh, found out about these these ideas and, and brought their toolkit. Cool. And then <clears throat> and this is where I'm probably going to embarrass myself on the internet and show my serious geographic ignorance here. Um, but is there a, like, you know, we talk about Northern Canada, Alaska, Siberia, is there a version of this story in the Southern hemisphere? Like I do know off the bat that there's no permafrost on the Southern coast of Australia. It's pretty jungly. Very um, but how about even when you get into the Southern tip of South America and Patagonia, it's like, is this a, is this a thing there? Yes. So there, yes, it is. This is a very much a Northern hemisphere. Well, okay. The Biscaborn paper is, is global. Uh, this was a Northern hemisphere list. Other than that, there is permafrost in the Southern hemisphere. It's not, not a very common question. Um, cause you don't think of it. The land masses of the planet where they are currently, uh, are Northern dominated with the exception of Antarctica, obviously, which is totally frozen. Um, so there's permafrost in everywhere in Antarctica. Uh, a lot of it is under the ice cap. So, you know, 
God forbid we we melt away the entire Antarctic ice cap. So we're ways away from studying. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But it it will come, you know, all of the same things, the paraglacial landscape will will uh, emerge there in the unglaciated areas on the the islands, the archipelagos, you know, the, the pointy bit that kind of goes up towards South America. There's lots of research going on there. Um, including some people uh, we know, so like uh, Dermot Antoniades uh, at Laval, um, some European colleagues uh, work in in those areas and and do permafrost paleo stuff there. And the British Antarctic Survey does a great amount of research everywhere, obviously, uh, Antarctica, obviously, but also other really cold areas like Greenland. So there is. And then there's a lot of alpine permafrost, so high altitude permafrost, because when you go up in altitude, it gets colder. And that means you get permafrost. So there is uh, permafrost in the Tibetan plateau, an incredible amount of research ongoing in uh, by researchers everywhere, a lot of Chinese colleagues uh, looking at permafrost in those areas. I get asked to review more uh, research papers from on thermocarst thawing not so much thaw slumps, but some in uh, the Tibetan plateau than anywhere else by probably five to one almost. Like there is an incredible amount of research going on there. And there is permafrost in other alpine areas. So Patagonia, high altitude areas of the Alps and, you know, to some small degree. Um, So yeah, anywhere it's cold, you're going to get cold ground. Okay. So then what do you think are the most interesting questions to pursue in this topic going forward? Uh, there are so, so many. I think, you know, we don't, we, so I am biased and I, I can talk about what I'm interested in. That's I really think, what I'm asking. Uh, yeah. So, and there are lots, you know, just, you know, every time you look at some, some new type of thaw it, it had and how it impacts different kinds of lakes. There's a lot there. What I'm interested in right now is uh, thinking about the legacy of thawing. So there has been permafrost thaw in the past, right? There were warm periods throughout the Holocene. It was warm in the early Holocene. The paleoliminologists know this. We kind of defined it, the Holocene climate optimum, uh, hypsy thermal, however you want to label it. When those happened, permafrost thawed. Uh, as it is thawing right now, as it's very warm. And uh, I'm interested in what that has to do with current thaw, because when you thaw permafrost, you know, it changes, right? The stuff is lost, the geology changes a little bit, the water is is maybe not there. Um, and, and is there a linkage between these past events of warm conditions and what's going to happen moving forward? How does that change the whole situation as it refroze, and now we're going to rethaw it. Can we learn from those past thaw events about where we're going in this rapidly warming future? And I think paleo, the one of the reasons I'm interested in those questions is because the only way to answer those is to go into the deep sediments um, in order to infer those changes. So that's what I'm kind of interested in right now. Um, <clears throat> are you, and then, okay, now we're getting to the more cheeky questions. Uh, how come you didn't list any of your own papers? Are they actually required reading for your students? That's a good question. Uh, just, I'm so humble. Uh, I mean, I was on the, the one, uh, paper there. So there is, um, 
you know, again, it's another one of those on another day, maybe I'd have put in one or one of mine in particular. If there's an honorable mention, my uh, paper, and that's kind of the basis of the, the review that Fred did um, from 2013 in Freshwater Biology, which is my most cited first author paper. I think it just did 100 citations, which is nice. My first first author, one that broke 100, um, w- would be the one I would pick. It's on how diet helms responded to permafrost loss lumping. Okay. So that would be my my honorable mention. Okay. I do ask the students to read that one. I kind of assume a lot of them are going to be working on diatoms, so you know they would they would pick it up on their own. I don't have to tell them to. Okay, so maybe we'll sneak that in as a link as well as an honorable mention. Sure. And, uh, and then wrapping up, is this episode been a pure double dip here? Is this just a list that you had in your back pocket ready to go before we even started? No. But it didn't take too much to, to pull together. It was more, I had a list of 20 and I needed to think, oh, which five do I pick? Um, more the like, it was probably like five general permafrost papers and then 15 paleo examples that I like and which ones kind of flow into the the list kind of, uh, sort of well at least. Um, so yes and no. Not not fully rather, but now I do. Yeah, so. now it'll be used going forward. Excellent. So in some ways, maybe I've codified it, and I, I won't add anything new to my list. It's like it's like how uh, you never know the literature any better than the day you finish your comps because you stop reading at that point, and that's the the end of it. Um, hopefully, that doesn't become the case. I'll have to update it every. Year. <laughs> not on the podcast. Sorry, you don't have to listen to me ramble for forty five minutes every year, guys. Don't worry about that. Uh, that's fine. But uh, um, well, I think one thing in terms of like the codified nature of it is you're good for a while because that is a very recent list. It's true. not going to be that out of date true. too too soon. Very true. All right. So you have Thanks it, for listening to me talk, everyone. Um, I'm looking at the like the waveforms of the recording of this podcast, and I don't see a lot of blanks in there. But no, it was good. I enjoyed going through all of those. So thanks for listening. Hope you found one or two interesting topics. And if not, you're probably not here anymore. So Yeah. And uh, yeah. And if you want to f- shoot us any questions uh, about this list in any way, if you've got suggestions for lists, throw them our way. Um, and once again, thanks for listening to Core Ideas, the Paleolimnology podcast. If you have a question or a comment or a suggestion for a future show, please send us a note. Yeah, you can do that at uh, the email address, coreideaspodcast at gmail.com or on Twitter at Core Ideas Paleo. Uh, we read everything you send us, so keep it coming. An archive of our past episodes and show notes is maintained on our website at coreideas.ajesiorski.ca. The link is listed in our Twitter bio, and through this arc, I will do my absolute best to have the lists updated pretty soon after the shows go live so you can follow along at home if you choose to do so especially when i forget the title (laughs) uh but if you are so inclined you can give us a rating or subscribe leave us a comment on apple Podcasts, google play soundcloud wherever you get your favorite podcast we love those five-star ratings comments but to be honest we don't get that many so we don't care all that much we're just here for fun we will actually care when we start if we got a couple so oh yeah yeah. that would be uh, there'd be some celebrating But that's it for today, and we'll be back soon to explore another core reading list related to paleolimnology, sticking to our ethos of pure knowledge without the economy.